Welcome to the Kaleo Life Podcast. You can find more resources for gospel living and information about us by going to our website, kaleo.community. Enjoy today's sermon. Tonight we'll be in Exodus chapter 20. But before we read our passage, I just want to give kind of an introduction as to what happened with Israel leading up to this point? And then we'll get to reading our passage. Uh, so if you're not familiar with the, with the story of, of Israel and kind of how they got to this place. So they were enslaved in Egypt. And there's a whole backstory to that, uh, but we'll just start there. Uh, they were enslaved in Egypt and... Uh, God sent Moses to uh, free his people. And so Moses goes and talks to Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, and says, you know, let my people go. And Pharaoh uh, does not allow them to go. And so God sends uh, several plagues and signs uh, to Pharaoh, to the Egyptians, because of his hardness of heart. And so eventually God, or Pharaoh, uh, lets the people of Israel go. And, uh, and so as they're fleeing from Egypt, uh, Pharaoh has a change of heart and pursues the Israelites to try to re-enslave them. And so Israel is kind of stuck between the oncoming army of Egypt and the Red Sea behind them. And so God rescues his people by separating the sea so the Israelites can pass through. And as the Egyptians uh, chase them uh, through the Red Sea, God closes the Red Sea and the Egyptian army is crushed. And so now the, Egypt, or the Israelites are free and they're wandering through uh, the wilderness and they start complaining and they start wanting, and they start thinking about wanting to go back to Israel or go back to Egypt because of, of the, uh, some of the comforts that they had as slaves. They're complaining about not having water and, you know, saying, did God just send us out here to kill us? And so God provides them with uh, fresh water. And then they're still complaining that they have nothing to eat. And so God sends them food from heaven. And so all throughout this time, God is providing for them even though they are grumbling against God. And so God continues to lead them through Moses and they end up at Mount Sinai. And uh, God talks to Moses and reminds him of what he has done for his people, how he has brought them out of Egypt when they were enslaved and how he brought them through the wilderness and how he brought them to this place where he is going to give his law to Moses and Moses will give God's law to his people. And so God says, because I have rescued you from Egypt, I've done all these things for you. Therefore you are to obey me and keep my covenant. And he says, if Israel will do this, then they will be his treasured possession among all the other people on earth. God says that they will be a kingdom of priests and they will be a holy set-apart nation. And so Moses goes and tells the people, hey, this is what God has planned for you if you obey him. 
and keep his covenant. And all the people say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And so God tells Moses to get the people of Israel ready. He has three days to kind of prepare them and God's gonna come down on the mountain, on Mount Sinai, in thunder and lightning in a thick cloud and give his law to his people. And so Moses brings the people to the foot of the mountain and God comes down in fire and smoke is swirling around the mountain and there's this great trumpet that sounds and God's people start to tremble and they're afraid. And so Moses goes and tells the people to wait at the bottom of the mountain while he goes up and receives God's law. And so that's where we're at in the story of the people of Israel. And so instead of just reading uh, the verse I'm gonna be preaching on, I thought we would go through and read all 10 commandments. Uh, so if you're willing and able, if you would please stand for the reading of God's word. We're gonna start at Exodus 20, verse one. It says, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord, your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord, your God. On it you shall do no, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the seventh day, the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your law. We thank you that we can know your will for us through your word and through your law. We thank you that you have given us a way to be reconciled to you. I pray that as we look into this commandment, Lord, that our hearts would be transformed, that our minds would be renewed to be able to do the things you've called us to do. God, I pray that you would use me as a tool, that you would speak through me. 
as we look into this commandment, Lord. We dedicate this time to you, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So as we look at the ninth commandment, what does it mean to bear false witness? I think initially what comes to mind is lying. Lying is the first thing that might come to your mind when you hear the commandment of not to bear false witness, not speaking truthfully. And one might think of lying as even a way to avoid getting into trouble for something, self-preservation perhaps. And we've all been there before. Kids, have you ever lied before? Show of hands. If your hand's not up, you're either not listening or you're lying right now. So, okay, put your hands down. Thank you. So you do something that you know is wrong and you might get in trouble for it. And so you either take responsibility for it or you can lie about it. And with our sinful hearts, our initial tendency, our knee-jerk reaction is to want to lie to avoid getting into trouble. And for myself as a parent and as a teacher, I deal with this on a consistent basis where kids are always trying to lie to get out of getting into trouble for something they've uh, gotten caught for. But is this really what God had in mind when he gave this commandment to his people? If God's intention for his law is that his people would show his character to his creation, then there has to be more in this commandment than just don't lie. This is probably why God chose to reiterate this command among others a few times through the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And so while this command in Exodus says you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and we'll get to the neighbor part of this a little bit later. But right now, I'd like to focus on the beginning of this command, bearing false witness. And so if you would please turn to Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus is just the next chapter after Exodus. Leviticus 19. We'll take a look at an aspect of this commandment in a little more detail. So in this chapter of Leviticus, uh, God is having Moses remind his people of his nature of being holy and that they too are called to be holy just as God is holy. And so in uh, verse 15 of Leviticus 19, it says, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. So here we have two negative commands and one positive command. The negative, do not, or sorry, do no injustice in court. And the other negative command, you shall not be impartial to the poor or defer to the great. And then the positive being, in your righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. So in this retelling of the ninth commandment, the setting is a courtroom. If you are to go to court against your neighbor, do no injustice to him and do not be impartial. 
And in America, we have laws around uh, lying, especially in court. And uh, does anybody know what it's called when you lie under oath in court? Perjury. That's exactly right. Perjury is intentionally lying after being sworn in to tell the truth. And we can trace this law that we have all the way back to God's law here. And while I can assume that most of us here in this room have lied before, uh, I don't think very many of us have committed perjury. But have we perhaps been impartial judges? Have you judged someone wrongfully based on their perceived socioeconomic status or trusted someone blindly based on their elevated position in society? I know for me as a parent, and maybe for some of you, we have fallen into this trap of being maybe biased towards one child or another in a given situation, right? You're in, you're in a room doing something, maybe you're in the kitchen getting food ready and things are kind of chaotic and you hear all this big commotion in the other room. All of a sudden, one child comes running to you, crying and screaming about their brother or sister doing something to them. And in the midst of what you're doing and trying to deal with this, you just go to the person who's being accused and you punish them without having to hear both sides and kind of sorting through all the nasty details about what transpired. So this can also be uh, uh, talked about in uh, jury duty. Anybody served jury duty before? A few of you, all right. So a few years ago, I had the pleasure of uh, being called to do jury duty. And you know, you receive that little postcard in the mail that says, show up to the courtroom or the courthouse on this date, or there will be a warrant out for your arrest or, you know, something like that. You know, they make it sound very like, you know, you better do this or else kind of thing. And so, you know, it's your civic duty. And so after you kind of come through or go through all the different uh, scenarios of how you can defer, you know, this, this thing and how can you, how can you get out of it? Um, eventually you're, you're going to have to go at some point. And so it was, a, it was in the summertime for me and I didn't, I wasn't teaching at the time. And so uh, I was able to go, and so I drive to the courtroom, and I, you know, check in and, and get my juror number. And in my past experiences, you know, you sit in a big room with a bunch of people that you don't know for a couple hours, and then they say, okay, so-and-so can go home, and so you just leave, and you, you did your duty. Uh, but this time, I actually got my, name, my number called, and I got ushered into the courtroom with a bunch of other jurors, and... Um, the lawyers were there with their clients. And so we had the, the case kind of brought to us. And basically what, what, the, what this case was, was there was a police officer who had pulled somebody over uh, for drunk driving. And so the officer had followed the person and had suspected that they were impaired. And so they pulled the person over. And after doing some field sobriety tests, they had determined that this person was in fact intoxicated. And so they had arrested him. The person who was arrested uh, was challenging the way that the officer had done the field sobriety tests. And so the lawyer's job is to, is to figure out which jurors are going to be a good fit for the case. And so the lawyers are asking us a whole bunch of questions. And one of the questions he asked us is, is anybody biased or impartial to drunk drivers? And so I raised my hand. 
I said I was. And so he started asking me some questions about that. And I said, well, it seems to me that the officer went through the appropriate steps to determine whether this individual was impaired or not. And so in my opinion, the person that was arrested has to prove that there was something that the officer did wrong or that he was not in fact impaired. And so obviously the lawyer went back to his client and they talked a little bit and then they kicked me out of the jury pool. And I was like, dang it, you know. So, uh, but in that situation, I had broken the ninth commandment. I was impartial. I had, I had two people in front of me. I had this police officer and I had this person that was suspected of drunk driving. And I elevated the police officer's status above this individual. And so I was an impartial judge in this situation. Now it's not wrong for us to judge those who have broken the law. God in his wisdom, knowing our sinful tendencies, created a system for us to do so in a way that would bring glory and honor to him and order to his people and our society. However, when we act in a way that is contrary to God's order and design, it brings God's judgment and condemnation on those who seek to do things in their own way outside of God's design and order. And we see this all around us in our society today. All the lawlessness that we see on the news, all the looting, all the vandalism with no consequences, no responsibility taken. We also see it with uh, the many false accusations that get thrown around uh, people being accused for crimes. And instead of the innocent until proven guilty, you're automatically guilty. And then even when your innocence is shown to be proven, the damage has already been done to your reputation. Maybe you lost your job. Maybe you have to move out of your uh, home because of, what, because of these false accusations. And this is where our legal system falls short and God's wisdom is shown as supreme. Turn again with me to Deuteronomy chapter 19 and we'll see a picture of God's justice with false witnesses. Starting in verse 15, it says a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst and the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit such an evil among you. You hear what this is saying? 
if I desire to falsely accuse my brother, whoever it is, my neighbor, and my intention is to send them to jail for 20, 30, 40 years, and it comes out that I'm a false witness, the penalty that he would have gotten goes to me. Let's say the penalty is the death penalty. If the punishment is a death penalty for them, I've accused them of some crime that they would be sentenced to death, and it comes out that I'm a false witness, I am the one who gets the death penalty for me being a false witness against them. And what is God's reason for this? He says, so you shall purge the evil from your midst and the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Just think in our society, if we had this law, how many fewer false accusations there would be thrown around. This is God's design for how his people are supposed to live. So as we look at this commandment to not bear false witness against our neighbor, what characteristics of God are displayed in this commandment? Two come out initially, truth and justice. We see the characteristic of God as truth in the person of Jesus. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In John 17, 7, Jesus is praying to God for the apostles and he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus was the only truly sinless man who had false witnesses accusing him of, of blasphemy when he was brought before the high priest after he was arrested. In Mark 26, it tells of this account. You can turn there if you'd like, or you can just listen. Matthew 26, starting in verse 59. Sorry, Matthew. Matthew. It says, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you or I command you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard this blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. So here we see Jesus being falsely accused of blasphemy and they are going to sentence him to death. Jumping to the Gospel of John, we pick up this story later on 
in John chapter 18, where Jesus is brought before Pilate. We'll start here in verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters and again called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose, I was born and for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And then Pilate goes back out to the crowd and he says, I have found no fault in him. And as this trial continues and the crowd is wanting to crucify Jesus, uh, Pilate gives the crowd a choice. He said, there's a man named Barabbas that is sentenced to death. I can either set Jesus free and crucify Barabbas, or I can let Barabbas go free and crucify Jesus. And the crowd demanded that Jesus was to be crucified. And just like Barabbas, who was guilty and was sentenced to death, we too are guilty of breaking God's law and the punishment is death. That is God's justice. God cannot let our disobedience go unpunished. Someone has to take the penalty of disobeying God. And just like Jesus took the place of Barabbas, he has also taken your place. Jesus took the wrath of God that we all deserved and bore that on the cross. In 1 Peter chapter 2, it says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. If you're here today and you've sinned against God, there is forgiveness in Jesus. Jesus took our sin upon himself and clothed us with his righteousness. There is no sin that can separate you from the love of God. No matter what you've done, no matter how many times you've messed up, no matter how much you've screwed up your life, the blood of Jesus can cleanse you and wash away all of your sins. And if you have received this forgiveness, if you have surrendered yourself to Jesus, there is an imperative there. There's something that you must do. You must die to sin and live to righteousness. 
Before we close our time, there's one more aspect of this commandment I want to talk about, and that's gossip. What is gossip? It's kind of tricky to exactly articulate what it is, and the Bible doesn't necessarily define it very clearly. Instead, the Bible talks about the character of people who engage in gossip. In an article that I read about this very thing, the author defined gossip in this way. He said, the sin of gossip is bearing bad news behind someone's back out of a bad heart. So there are three aspects to this definition that I think are worth looking at. Bearing bad news, doing it behind someone's back, and doing it out of a bad heart. One of the many benefits of being a part of a church family is that we have the honor and the privilege to bear one another's burdens. As we engage in close, intimate relationships with one another, as we meet together and share our burdens and share the things that we're struggling with and ask for prayer, these are good and necessary things that we should be doing. They're healthy things. But there can be a tendency to take those things outside of the group and to share those things with others. And this could be in the form of gossip. The information you're sharing may or may not be true. The people that you're sharing it with might not have any reason to know anything about it. And it might be unnecessarily painting the person being talked about in a negative light. This is neither kind nor loving to your neighbor. Doing it behind someone's back. It's a lot easier to talk about someone, especially negatively, when it's behind their back. If you wouldn't say it to their face, you probably shouldn't be saying it to other people. The Bible describes someone who talks behind someone's back as a whisperer. It says in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 28, a dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer separates close friends. Also in Proverbs in chapter 26, verse 20, it says, for lack of wood, a fire goes out. And where there is no whisper, quarreling ceases. So here they equate a whisper, someone who goes around talking behind people's back, as someone who separates close friends and who creates quarreling. The third aspect of gossip is it being out of a bad heart. What is your motivation for sharing information about somebody else with others? Is it out of love and care and concern for the individual being talked about? Are you seeking counsel on how to talk with, with the individual in question? Or are you just wanting to share some new juicy issue that you just heard about that's not so great? Jesus said in Matthew 15, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, 
uh, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. There has been a common theme as we've been talking about the Ten Commandments. If people just took this list at face value and just tried to change their behavior, it would just strictly be behavior modification. They might be doing all the right things, but if there's not a heart change behind it, if the motivation is not coming from the heart, then it's worthless. God does not want your behavior modification. God wants your heart to be changed and transformed. So the other aspect to this commandment is not bearing false witness against your neighbor. Who is your neighbor? Is it just the person that lives next door to you? Is it just the the, the people inside your household? God says it's even your enemies. Anybody that you have around you, whether it's at work, at home, in your neighborhood, in your church, everybody around you in your sphere of influence is your neighbor. And the problem with gossip is that this type of sin can be so deceptive. It can sneak into conversations, and if you're not careful, it can spread through the whole body like a cancer. So with our time left, there are three encouragements I have for you. If you are the type of person that might be inclined to gossip, talk about people behind their back in a way that might be uncharitable, I would encourage you to stop. Just stop doing it. Pray, ask God to take this desire away from your heart and actively fight against it. Maybe you don't participate in gossip yourself, but you happen to be around it and hear it, and you choose to say nothing. I would encourage you to speak up and speak against gossip in a very direct way. The Bible tells us to speak the truth in love. And if someone is speaking falsehoods or even speaking truths about someone in a disparaging way, have the boldness to say something to them about it. The sin of gossip has the potential to divide and even destroy churches and friendships and families. We need to be actively fighting against it. And one of the best ways to do this is to be intentional about encouraging one another and building each other up. To be praying for each other and letting the person know who you're praying for that you're praying for them. Send encouraging text messages to people. There are a lot of things that we can be uh, doing to invest in the health of our church family and and in our relationships. And I would encourage you this week to make a point in doing that. It doesn't have to be a big thing. It can just be a simple text saying, hey man, praying for you today, or you've been on my heart lately, I'm praying for you. And this gets back to our identity in Christ as name bearers of God. If we are God's representatives on earth, 
We need to be living in a way that shows the unbelieving world who God is. We serve a great and mighty God who will never leave us or forsake us. And no matter where we are, no matter what we've done, he is faithful to his people. So as we continue to worship tonight through song, as we remember the sacrifice of Jesus that brought us reconciliation to God, we take communion and we acknowledge what our sin has cost Jesus, his very life, and what it provides for us in the forgiveness of our sins and the reconciliation to God. So as we sing this next song, I would encourage you, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have submitted your life to him, as you come up and as you take the cup and the bread and as you return back to your seats, just be reminded of the free gift of grace and mercy that you've been given. And I invite you to, to find comfort and to celebrate that as we continue in our service this evening. Let me pray. God, we thank you for what you have done for us. We thank you that you have made a way for us to be reconciled to you. I thank you that you have given us this command to not bear false witness, but to love our neighbor. Help us, God, this week to do that in a very tangible way. In Jesus' name, amen.